Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there render, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift therefore before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And everyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This is the fifth week in the season of Epiphany, and if you were here last week, you may remember our discussion of Jesus Christ's teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, and how that sermon was the beginning of his announcement of his action as the presentation of the law of God to the people of God. We remember how Moses went up to Sinai, and that going up was done in response to Yahweh's call to come up to the top of the mountain. And there Yahweh delivered the law to Moses, and through Moses he delivered it to the people of God. But at this point, we see a great difference, that Jesus does not ascend the mountain like Moses ascends, but rather he ascends and then he calls up his disciples to him. Jesus is not correcting things that are wrong 
in the word of God, but rather he is modifying their perversion of the law for unrighteous uses. And so what Jesus begins to do in teaching the principles of his kingdom, he begins to explain the necessity of righteousness. And we see this in each one of what are called the Beatitudes, that we require poverty of spirit if we are to come to God, that we must be pure if we are even to see God. And through each of these statements, it is like an indictment against the man of sin. It is an an indictment against the hard heart, which is not able to seek God, indeed is only constantly running from God. And so at the same time of Jesus expounding and applying the law, he is simultaneously convicting us of our deep need for washing and cleansing, for atonement to God, but he also is simultaneously showing us his glory. And we're going to see how that works at the end of today's message when we go back through these statements and see how Christ fulfilled that. So to that end, I want to look at four things before we interact with Jesus's words. When he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law, we have to first understand what the law of God is, what it was given for, and how it is in force, which portions are set aside or Uh, fulfilled totally and do not have any binding, and those portions which are still applicable to Christians for understanding righteousness. We're going to look at the proper use of the law and an improper use of the law. The law is a tool and it can be abused or it can be used rightly for a glorious God, uh, God glorifying and edifying purpose. After this, we're going to look at Jesus Christ's teachings on the law and how he establishes it or causes it to come to pass that we might be able to understand. Jesus is not just explaining what you need to have if you are to be right with God. He also is explaining the means by which that can even be possible in the first place. Then we're going to look at how Jesus progresses through what's called the second table of the law. If that phrase is unfamiliar to you, it just means those provisions in the Ten Commandments, which were given on two tablets, the first tablet containing commandments one through four, with laws about idolatry and keeping of the Sabbath, and then tablets two, which is commandments five through ten, which deal with honoring your father, not murdering, not adultery, uh, not committing adultery, not coveting, not stealing, not bearing false witness. If you are familiar with the second table, you may recognize that Christ is actually progressing through that table. And he's actually teaching what the godly perspective and the godly reading of the law is such that his disciples would recognize their deep inability and also deep necessity to be put right with God. And then finally, we're going to see how Christ himself fulfilled the law creating for us a provisional righteousness, but also showing his glory. That's one of the themes that we want to focus on during this season of Epiphany, how Jesus Christ not only came, but made himself manifest to the people. We saw three weeks ago how he not only went to the people, he also went to some of the surrounding regions. And now he's beginning to teach and preach publicly, showing the glory of his Father and explaining what he's going to be doing. Although, as we see today... It's in a veiled form, but now that we've experienced the rest of the Gospels, we can recognize the signs of Christ's suffering and passion, even in these commandments. And so my hope is that I would be able to show you, by God's grace, the glory of Jesus Christ in not only teaching clearly the will of God as expressed in the law, but also showing how he not only satisfied that law, but paid the penalty, and that penalty is carried out in completing each commandment of the law and to its fullest extent. So I want to discuss really briefly the purpose of the law. In Adam, as you may are, may be familiar, all men sinned. This is where we get the beginning of the covenant of redemption as it works out from our perspective that we know that Adam and Eve rebelled against God's authority in the garden. And the New Testament tells us plainly that through that one man's transgression, all have transgressed. And that transgression unleashed a principle of death into the world such that through his sin, death was unleashed and that death has spread to all men. Now, God told Adam that in the day that you eat from this tree, you will die. And yet, Adam does not die in a physical sense. 
But surely we understand that there was a principle of corruption, a principle of iniquity that was released through this sin that Adam then began to be subject to. And all who were in Adam's loins, that is to say Adam's seed, if you will, carry on that same corruption and that same nature and principle. If you want any evidence of this, just watch a news cycle for 24 hours. Witness the levels of corruption and evil and murder that go on around the world. You could, e- you could even just watch a local news channel if you were acquainted with the evils of your own city. You would see that this is a universal principle, that, that sin has filled all men, and that problem is not known to them. This is the great aspect of the mystery of iniquity, that all men joined in the rebellion of Adam, and yet through deadness of spirit, they are not conscious of their rebellion. They simultaneously are warring against God's will, God's authority, trying to throw off his authority or reign, and yet at the same time, their spirits are so dead that they're not even self-conscious of their plight. People who are going to hell do not revel in the knowledge of going to hell. They, they are trapped because their spirits are dead. They have no moral reasoning ca- uh, capabilities that would cause them to turn to God for a remedy. They are ignorant of their plight. And so God's giving of the law is not merely to create sin, as the New Testament says, that the law itself is not sin, but rather that where the law is not present, men have no knowledge of their sin. And the reason why is because men have no standard by which they can claim something to be sin or not. God's law, therefore, is an external word which comes to man, and that external word is not arbitrary, but it is God's expressed will concerning righteousness. That law teaches the man what sin is. And Paul reasons this way, that through the law, sin produced all sorts of sinning in me. Because I didn't fully know what coveting was until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And so the law did not produce sin, but sin took advantage through the law and produced and multiplied iniquity in me. And this is exactly God's purpose in giving the law to his people. Therefore, God promises in the new covenant to give his people a new heart and a new spirit. And then he says, and I will write my law upon their hearts. When we hear this, if we have wrong conceptions of the purpose of the law, we have to think to ourselves, how is this any remedy from the plight of what we see going on in the Old Testament scriptures? If Israel was unable to complete the law, how is it a good thing that our covenant, which the New Testament says is new and better and full of glory, how is it a good thing that God says that I will still write my law, but instead of tablets of stone external to the human heart, now it will be written on the heart? The reason it is a glorious and wonderful thing is that God is doing something about that sin. We cannot keep the law in our sin. However, the new covenant does not simply just promise that he will write his law on our heart. It promises that he will give us a new heart. And without that new heart, we cannot complete the law in the way that God wishes us to complete it. The the New Testament presents us being remedied from this condition of being dead in sin by God transferring us uniting us to Jesus Christ's work by faith, causing us to become dead to sin instead of dead in sin. What this means is that before we come to Christ, we are unable to do anything but sin. We are constitutionally rebelling against God. We are, we are those who are blind to our own deep need, and yet by faith at the entry of God's gospel to the human heart, being aided by the Holy Spirit, God performs a righteousness for that person. That is to say, he applies the work of Christ by his Spirit, such that they are quickened to new life in Jesus Christ. And this is a wonderful, glorious promise of the new covenant, that those who were dead in sin would become dead to sin and alive to God. And in fact, this principle is so important that Paul says to the believers to consider yourselves dead to sin, to think about yourself in such a way as you understand that that old man, which is being put to death, is giving rise to the the emergence of the new man. 
God reconciled us to himself in Christ, and he set aside our sin, and he made us a new creation in his spirit. That is the glorious promise of the new covenant that attends to the promise of the law being written on our heart. So the new covenant is not just a tweaking of the mode of the old covenant. It is a glorious and better covenant in which the promises of God are more thoroughly made manifest. Therefore, believers in Christ who have been remade are no longer trapped under the law. Many Christians take this phrase, that we are no longer under the law, to mean that the law does not have any bearing to Christians. But in the way that Paul speaks of it, he says that the law was our tutor or our guardian, and that we are no longer trapped under the law because of our deadness to sin, but rather by Christ, we have died to the law in such a way that we are dead to sin and now alive to Christ. He makes us new creations And he does that in order that his law would not only be written on our heart, but carried out in the power of his spirit. Our our, uh, interaction with the law, therefore, is twofold. It shows us our need for Christ. This is before and after conversion, because the law constantly recommends us to Christ and constantly commends us to seek grace. It does that. It teaches us to come to Christ. And the other thing that the law does for a believer is it proves or demonstrates the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. You see, some Christians think, well, I don't need to understand God's law. It doesn't apply to me because I'm not under the law. I just need to love my neighbor. And I would say, amen, you do need to love your neighbor. But how do you know what love is? Love is not just what is defined by our culture. There are standards of God's law. What does it mean to live ethically and judiciously to our brothers and sisters? How are we to understand our obligations to our fellow man and to God apart from his word? You see, the the law is deeply important to Christians. It is not something that has been set aside, as Jesus says at the opening verse of today's readings. So it is exactly in this context, this theological context, not not the readings context, it is in this sort of context, this approach to the understanding of the law's function, that Christ begins to teach on the Sermon on the Mount about the law of Moses. And he goes step by step through these laws for a number of reasons. One is to show that we cannot earn righteousness by keeping the law. You will see quite clearly, even at the first commandment that Jesus explains, that you have transgressed his law. And if the first one does not convict you, if you are so dead in your sin that you cannot feel any sense of remorse over murdering your brother in your heart, the next commandment comes like a siege work against a wall wrought in iniquity to come and tear down the opposition to God's righteousness. This is the purpose of the law. It is to show through convincing means, through the very effectual word of God, that you have transgressed his word. And that transgression cannot be remedied by you. Christ teaches us to use the law in its proper use, not earning righteousness, but rather convincing ourselves by his grace of a deep need for atonement and forgiveness. The law's purpose is to show us a deep need for Jesus Christ. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And then right from there, Christians jump to, but I'm not under the law. You see how that's dichotomous, right? The reason it's dichotomous is because Jesus then begins to show how the law applies and he's teaching his disciples. He is not teaching the Pharisees or Sadducees. He's not saying with a caveat, after I die, this is all done. He says that in the new kingdom, in the kingdom which is coming, those who diminish and dismiss the law are reduced. Those who teach believers to follow the law are blessed and commended. He says, for truly I say, until heaven and earth pass away, and I would just point out to you that we live in the same world that Jesus lived in. You do not live in a, in a world that is completely trapped in sin. You live in a world in which God's redemption is breaking into and has brought, been uh, breaking into. You live in a world in which dead men come lo- to back to life. 
That's, that's Paul's whole reasoning in 1 Corinthians 15, that if you say the resurrection doesn't apply, then you're dead in your sins. And so we have to understand Jesus saying that this law continues in some sense. Now, the way that we understand the law to have been fulfilled through the rest of the New Testament, the apostles teach us that those ceremonial laws that were to mark a cultural distinction between Israel and the Gentiles and those things which were for temple worship have been set aside, having been perfectly fulfilled, for they were only a shadow and a type of Christ. However, what Jesus is discussing here is the moral application of the law. And what's so interesting is you see other New Testament writers, Paul, for example, appeal to case law in establishing their point, as if that reasoning would have held with his audience. And so we would do well to understand what Jesus is saying. I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Christ opens his discourse saying he will fulfill the law, And by fulfill, we understand him to mean at least two things. First, we understand him to mean that he will perfectly obey it himself, that the act of obedience of Christ was a necessary component of our coming to God. And the second element is this, that he would finally enable, by the power of his spirit, a teaching that we could keep the law, not of our own, not by our own power, not to establish our righteousness, but to understand it. He fully expounds and develops, and it is exactly this and only this which fits the context of what he's doing. You see, he does not just say, I have come to obey the law perfectly, because why would he then teach what the law demands? He says, I've come to fulfill the law, and then he begins to expound the law so that his disciples might not have any error in how they approach God's ways, God's word. He then upholds the wisdom of teaching this. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments teaches others to do the same and will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, we saw how Jesus at the very entry of his public ministry, he begins to say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the way Matthew records the phrase. In other gospels, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Brothers and sisters, those things which are at hand are near. If it's at hand, it's within your touch. And so he says the kingdom is at hand. He brings his kingdom. And we know this because he said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then know that the kingdom has come among you. And the gospels clearly attest that Jesus over and over again was casting out demons. So he says at the beginning, the kingdom is at hand. He then says in his teachings that the kingdom is here. And in this context, we understand Jesus is not talking about a future age, that the kingdom is some time after he is speaking, but rather it applies to his audience. And if we are to have any understanding of the New Testament, then it must apply to us as well. You see, you cannot pick and choose which verses of the New Testament apply to you and verses apply to the apostles alone. There is a deep danger in slicing the text of anything that I I don't even like writing in my Bible. I know some people like it. But some people take it to an extreme and they get out a pen knife instead of a pen and they just cut out portions that they want. And they, they like those portions and they remove other portions. You cannot play fast and loose with the text. Verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. That presumes two things. It presumes, one, that they have a righteousness, which we're going to examine in just a second. It also presumes that it would be possible for his disciples to enter the kingdom. Now, I would maintain this is not putting the kingdom as just eternal life after death or after the second coming, but rather Jesus defined eternal life as knowing him who the Father has sent and knowing the Father as well. And so this mode of approaching the law is taught by Jesus and commended to his disciples so that they would obey it. So my question is, how can a disciple's righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes? Think about this for a second. The Pharisees and scribes, most of them, completely memorized the law. Right? I haven't memorized the law. I don't grow nor tithe mint or or dill. 
The, the point is that he is trying to say something about the necessity of righteousness, and he says something that also illuminates the way that they perverted the law. Can we exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by setting aside the law? I would answer no, not at all, for in fact, Jesus says that the Pharisees are the ones who set aside the law for the sake of their traditions. Hebrews, as, we, as you may remember from our time in, in Hebrews that we went through as a series, it says that those who set aside the law of Moses die on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is to say, transgressing the law, according to the writer of Hebrews, is called setting it aside or ignoring it or thinking it doesn't apply to me. And yet Jesus Christ is commending the keeping of the law such that your righteousness would exceed. The way that Christians can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees is by understanding the type of righteousness that Jesus is speaking about. Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus wars against the Pharisees and Sadducees, saying that their righteousness is actually unrighteousness, that it is vainglorious, that it is self-seeking, that it is perverted. And so we are not to understand Jesus' commandments to simply be a get-off-the-hook card or get-out-of-jail card, but rather to help us understand that we must approach God's law in a godly way. We see this over and over again. Christians are not only to receive the righteousness of God which comes by faith, and that absolutely is necessary, but we are to improve upon that righteousness, not to improve a quality of it, but to improve our apprehension of it. What do I mean by that? I mean that by faith, you can have peace with God. Through the work of Jesus Christ, who is the only atonement, the only name by which men can be saved, you can come to trust in God for your salvation. However, God does not wish for you to simply remain at a provisional righteousness, but he wants you to walk in the righteousness that he himself purchased. That is no means to add to the righteousness of Christ. And in fact, if you look at the rest of the New Testament, it's commended over and over again. Ephesians 2 says that we were predestined in him that we would walk in good works. There was an end or a goal that not only would we be saved and redeemed, but that it would be a transformation. And that we would begin to, by the power of the Spirit, walk in righteousness, doing the law as the new covenant promise of Ezekiel and Jeremiah says, from the heart, obeying without compromise, obeying without, uh, without deceit. We see this in Romans and in James. Romans says that Abraham was credited righteousness by faith, and then James builds on that, just like Paul says that you must be careful to build on the foundation of Christ. James says that Abraham believed God and obeyed God, proving his faith, proving his justification with God. So without hypocrisy at all, Christians absolutely can walk in the righteousness of the Spirit. In fact, this is what we were saved for, to be those who are, as we saw last week, salt to a compromised culture and environment and light to a dark world. We are not supposed to be salt in the shaker, lights that are turned off. We are supposed to be salt that is savory, that's applied to the meat lights that are bright and shining, that testify to the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus commands in our reading that we saw last week. So this is exactly Christ's intention in his teaching. Case by case, Christ then expounds the law, and each time he shows a difference between external adherence to the written code versus keeping the law from the heart. This is exactly what Christ is talking about. As Christ teaches, he moves mostly through the second table of the law, skipping the fifth commandment, but then talking about the sixth and seventh, and then jumping to eight and discussing seven, uh, excuse me, uh, jumping to nine and discussing eight and ten as well. We're going to see that. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, you may pick up this theme. I think Jesus is being perfectly intentional in this regard. At another point, at another time, Jesus does interact with the Pharisees and shows how they break the commandment to honor their father and mother. 
the discussion, if you might remember, with the laws of Corbin. That's beyond our scope today. But the point is that Jesus is showing and demonstrating the way to understand the law. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Christ says that truncating God's prohibition against murder to only an external thing, only something that is in public, is the wrong understanding of the righteous requirement of God's word. That is to say that God surpasses just judging things on a judicial and public level, that is the actual murder of another human life, the stopping of the beating of another's heart, if you will, he also considers those things which are the spiritual seeds of external murder to be murder. Think about this. When have you ever had a rage fill your heart in retaliation against someone else? This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, if you ever get so angry without cause to be concerned with your brother's unrighteousness such that you want to establish it by removing your brother then you have murdered. This was the rivalry between Cain and Abel. Abel was proved righteous. He had a sacrifice that was accepted by God, and Cain, his sacrifice was rejected. So what did he do? He didn't appeal to the mercies of God. He killed his brother because he was indicted with his own failure to come before God in a pleasing way, in a way that was according with faith. This is the type of spirit that murder entertains. God is concerned, therefore, with both external and internal righteousness and will judge with that level of scrutiny. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, whoever says you fool, that is a a slander to the life and imago Dei of of another, will be liable to the hell of fire. Who is it that sends men to hell? There's a pervasive heresy going on in the church today, in which we have totally perverted the judgment which comes at the last day, saying that men choose to go to hell and keep themselves there. Now, I don't fully understand why this is so popular, but the scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ is the one who will judge all men on one day, and that day will be the day that he returns from heaven, which is the glorious deliverance of the saints, and the eternal condemnation of those who reject God's authority and reject his Christ. Jesus says this level of scrutiny will cause some to go to hell. That is the severity of God's law. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, God's law is the express intention of his heart. Jesus tells his disciples, out of the mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Likewise, his law is the abundance that fills God's heart. He wants his people to know what he thinks about sin, that it is not a trivial matter or a, tr- a trifle, something to be played with, but that murdering someone else is a removing of the authority of God who caused that person to come into existence. This is what abortion is in our day, that God who is knitting and fashioning, fashioning together precious image bearers in the womb that a doctor at the permission of the mother or the father and the mother would interrupt God's active knitting together. That is what murder is. A murder, a spirit of murder, is the warring against God's sovereignty in causing a life to be formed, in causing his image to be deposited on a human being. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying that if you war against God's sovereignty, even in your heart, you are guilty of the same external murder. Think about that. That, That's terrifying. Again, he moves straight from this commandment, if they weren't convinced enough, to the next commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully with lustful intent, excuse me, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God is the one who sees past the externals. He is not concerned merely with external righteousness, but also internal righteousness. But he is concerned with external public civic sins, if you will. That is, those which can be observed with the natural eye. 
He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Christ is expounding this prohibition, and he's actually beginning to interact, not just with the law of Moses, which is pure, holy, and righteous, and good, as the New Testament says, but he then begins in verse 31, that phrase of let him give a certificate of divorce, he then takes an interpretation from Deuteronomy and begins to war against the rabbinical tradition, which took God's commandment that divorce was permissible in the case of sexual infidelity, and he then shows how the rabbis over the ages have perverted it. Now, we don't use any of the old rabbinic scriptures or rabbinic writings, if you will, as part of our spiritual wisdom. The Bible is the 66 books, and that's it. However, it sometimes is necessary to see things outside of the scriptures to understand something that's plainly said in the scriptures. Jesus is saying that the rabbis of his day had perverted the original commandment and in fact, if you go and read these writings in the Midrash and all of the different writings that even were promulgated all the way through the 13th century, even to this day, they, they added on to God's law saying that if a man, if, excuse me, if a woman salts her husband's dinner the wrong way, that he can put her away. That if she doesn't find sexual favor in his eyes, that he can put her away. They had added to the law of God. And what he's saying is that those who pervert justice by sinning in this way, those are committing adultery. Even though they themselves were not participating in a sexual immorality, the act of rending asunder what God has joined together is adultery. This is what Malachi is talking about. Why have you flooded my altar with tears? God has an indictment against his people who sin in this way. Christ then discusses love of neighbor, talking about the 8th, ninth, and 10th commandments. We're going to look at them very briefly. He said, you shall not swear falsely. Swearing falsely is not avoiding all promises. Some Christians take this to an extreme that Jesus does not imply here. But rather, swearing falsely is promising by the power of something else. If you're familiar with medieval or sci-fi, you might have heard phrases like, by, you know, the hammer of Thor, I will complete this mission. Now, that's a ridiculous example, but what it is essentially getting to is that Jesus is prohibiting the placing of trust through words, through public promises to other people, that you will complete your oath or your promise by the power of something. And this is something that sometimes feels hard to connect to, but this is the subtle pride of life. This is exactly what he's getting at when he's saying, do not swear by heaven for it is God's throne. Do not swear by the things in the earth. It is one of two things, the placing of one's confidence in a thing by which one swears or the intentional deception for an evil purpose. In fact, the reason we know that this is not the avoiding of all promises is that God himself makes a promise. And the book of Hebrews says that he swore by himself because he himself is the power by which he works to cause the covenant to be fulfilled. Swearing with oaths, therefore, is a form of false witness. It is a form of boasting in one's power and deluding one's neighbor to place their trust in you. This accords with what James says about business. He says, don't say that tomorrow we're going to do this and that, but rather you should say that if God permits. This is what it means to not swear falsely or to not promise with wrong authority or wrong, wrong trust and faith in God. He said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, this second phrase, hate your enemy, is not something in the law of Moses. It's actually in the rabbinic writings and traditions. And they actually said something to the effect of, if you go to your brother and, he, and you convince him of his sin and he doesn't repent, then you should hate your brother. Think about that for a second and how different it is from the righteousness that Christ revealed. How many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times? The reason he's asking that question is because in their day, they held to some sort of perversion of 
the laws of forgiveness that if you go to your brother and he doesn't receive you, that at some point you should just simply dismiss him. The purpose is not for that brother to be one in that mindset. The purpose is for vindication of self. But Jesus turns it on its ear. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The wisdom is certainly not from man in this passage. The wisdom is clearly from above. No man on earth would reason that it is wise to continually be in debt, so to speak, of allowing forgiveness to flow towards those who have harmed us and to actually pray for them that they would be blessed. The spirit of man wishes for retaliation, and yet Jesus Christ says that the spirit of God, that is the evidence of being a son or daughter of God, is one who asks for forgiveness for the other. This is absolutely amazing. So Christians must not just pray for friends and those who've harmed us, but even for those who hate us and do wrong to us. Think about the requirement of the law here, that every time that someone comes against you, you would actually make a godly improvement on that temptation of anger and transmit it to petitioning for grace from the throne of God for that person. To go so far from not retaliating to not simply being neutral, but to actually be in the favor of that enemy, to actually pray for them to be blessed. In every case that we've looked at, Christ shows that the right interpretation of the law is a more severe understanding or a more difficult understanding than simply adhering to the external provision. It's easy for me not to murder. I've never wanted to physically murder someone that I've took steps to carry it out. But I have, and you have as well, deeply desired that someone would be stopped, that their voice would be shut down, if you will. That's a form of what Jesus is saying here. In our culture, there is no one who is not guilty of lust. And in fact, it's not just a cultural thing. But interestingly, I was reading some studies on a psychological journal that was talking about a desire for the uh, sociologists and psychologists to do a study on the effects of porn, and they wanted a control sample. And if you're familiar with the scientific method, a control sample is vanilla, if you will. You know, it's, it's something that hasn't had the effect of something. And they, they were seeking a control sample to see, you know, can we see the effect of pornography on a male's brain and, and the way that they uh, exhibit, you know, sexuality and how they do their life? And they couldn't even get more than one person who said on a confidential form that they've never looked at pornography. This was like a Harvard-level study. The point was that pornography, the celebration and promulgation of lust, is so rampant in our culture that even on this commandment alone, the law of God should convict. What Jesus is saying is no one can do the law, for all have transgressed. And yet... He says, do not pro prohibit, do not diminish the law. Seeing how God judges iniquity, who can say that he's blameless? Psalm 130 says, if, if, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? It's, it's a rhetorical question because the obvious answer is no one. No one could stand. Every mouth which would establish its own righteousness is stopped. And so at this point, being fully convicted by the law, what are we to do? Brothers and sisters, what I deeply desire that you would see in these next few minutes is that as Jesus has taught, as Jesus promoted righteousness to his Father, he also lived in accordance with what he taught. That he was not a hypocrite in his teachings, but in fact, each one of them was perfectly fulfilled Although veiled in this chapter, but through the rest of the New Testament, we see it clearly that each one of these commandments was upheld in Christ's passion. All of them are a foretaste. Each one of them is a teaching of what he himself will do as he pays for iniquity. Just as he taught, he also lived, completing the whole law and showing us to do the same. The first 
is the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. Christ honored the will of his heavenly father, completing it even though it required being obedient to the death of a cross. Not only did he obey and honor his heavenly father as he is at the cross, you may have seen this if you've ever seen a Jesus movie or a Jesus video or ever read the Gospel of John. His mother is there at the crucifixion scene, and he's on the cross, and he says to his most precious disciple, the one who it says at, at the upper room was leaning on his breast, the place of tenderness that the Lord reserved for that one disciple among the three who were among the twelve, John the Apostle. And he says to John and to his mother, he says, woman, behold your son. And then he says to John, behold your mother. What he's doing here is deeply significant because at this time we rightly understand that his mother was without her husband, Joseph, who was Jesus's earthly parent, though not his biological father. And we understand the severity of losing your firstborn who was the one who was carrying the promises of God for your family and, pretend, uh, and providing for your parents. And so Jesus is upholding the fifth commandment. Jesus Christ is the only one who did not return murder for murder, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But in fact, even while being murdered, he himself was not reviling even though he was reviled and he suffered, yet as he suffered, he uttered no threats. What's so amazing to me is that all of the warnings that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew take place before the crucifixion, such that while he was being crucified, that this could be so clear that the Gospels would faithfully record and the New Testament epistles would faithfully com commend us to imitate Christ, that while he was being crucified, he did not utter threats, that his mouth was not even defending his own honor or, or seeking vindication. Christ walked as a man that was acquainted with every temptation. It says that Christ was made like his brothers in all things, that he was tested in all things, and yet without iniquity. And this might be the most wonderful uh, thing that we could even possibly hope for or understand from the Gospels. Christ never looked at a woman with lust in his heart. Jesus Christ was perfectly wise with his spirit and eyes every moment of every day. And not only that, although this is somewhat of a poetic or, poetic or typological reading, Christ is the only man who had the right to divorce his wife, being completely untainted by sin, and she being completely given over to that. Now I'm speaking in a typological or poetic way. For Israel was understood in the scriptures as to be the bride of Yahweh. Your maker is your husband. And in fact, when you look at this passage in Isaiah 54, he, he says that I have put you aside for a time, but I will restore you. Jesus Christ is doing this at the cross, that he is creating a righteousness by which his bride might be washed, giving up his own blood and washing her with the water of the word, such that he would present her to himself as pure and spotless. See, Christ is not the one who doesn't just not commit adultery. He's not just the one who doesn't divorce unrighteously. He is the one who takes the divorced woman and redeems her. That's the point of Hosea. That's the point of that bridal imagery of the New Testament. Christ has never borne false witness, but always spoke the truth and testified in the light. See, Jesus is saying that you ought not to swear falsely, and throughout all of his public ministry and teaching, he teaches openly without any deception, without any secret teachings, without any hidden motives, but desires that all would come to the truth. He says to, if you are struck on the cheek, to turn the other cheek. And interestingly, to the letter, Christ is struck and yet does not return blow for blow, but actually appeals to righteousness. If, I've said anything, if I haven't said anything wrong, why do you strike me? Hoping even in that very moment that some entry of his word to that person who struck him might cause them to re-examine something or be awakened to the deep iniquity of what they were doing. 
Not only that, his soldiers take not only his cloak, but also his tunic. If you watch a Jesus movie, it lies almost in one thing completely. Every single movie or painting that I've ever seen, save for one sculpture, and that only in the last few decades, it has become Christian tradition in Christian art to demonstrate the crucifixion with a loincloth covering our Lord. But it's very clear that the word for tunic is the undercloak. It's not just a robe on the external that was taken. It was also his clothing, that he was crucified naked, bearing the shame and iniquity of his people. You see, Jesus Christ is the one who obeys his own teachings. Finally, at the cross, we see that Christ is pleading for his enemies, even while on the Christ. uh, on the cross, praying for them in the very moments that he is being murdered. Think about this for a second, that he is on the cross and there are Roman centurions who have placed him there and who are staying there until he is dead, making sure that it takes, if you will. And in that very moment, he petitions his father saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You see, Christ is the one who loves his enemies and prays for those who persecuted him. Jesus Christ not only taught the law and not only showed how we ought to imitate him, but he himself demonstrated point for point keeping the law righteously. Christ in both his life, suffering, and death was entirely perfect, keeping the law and obeying his father. And it is only those who by faith place their trust and hope in him that can be redeemed and given forgiveness of sin. But not only that, brothers and sisters, Jesus was teaching the law to show his own glory and also commend it to those who would one day be remade according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give us a great understanding of your glory, Jesus Christ, that you exhibited in this teaching of your law. We thank you, Lord, that you have completely delivered us from any attempts to hope to perform your law on our own. Lord, we thank you that your grace has appeared, not only convincing us of sin and of our inability to do anything about sin, but also providing for us a means of escape, that we would flee to Christ, that we would fly to him and take refuge in him. Lord, we ask that you would convince us of his mighty glory and power, And that as we seek to understand his teachings, we would see him as the only good teacher, as the only righteous and perfect and obedient son of the Father. And that in some way, by your spirit, we would be conformed to his image. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.